Over four decades ago, medical device pioneers John Abley and Pete Nicholas co-founded Boston Scientific to get life-saving technologies into the hands of physicians. Today, thousands of Boston Scientific employees are continuing that mission. We'll begin to tell their stories here on the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. This is a conversation we took from the stage of Device Talks Boston. The title of it was, or is, Meaningful Innovation in Urology, Can You Handle the Pressure? Yes, it was uh, not exactly a lighthearted conversation about innovation in urology, but it was a fantastic discussion uh, led by Megan Scanlon. She, of course, is president of urology. It featured Jennifer Saunders, senior manager of medical affairs, Ben Cutone, global franchise director of prostate health, and Kristen LaRocca. She is senior vice president of sales for the group. The conversation centers around Boston Scientific's LithoView Elite single-use digital flexible scope. It contains sensors that enable doctors to to do a better job of diagnosing and treating patients with urology ailments, including kidney stones. And uh, this conversation talks a bit about, or centers, starts with innovation, but really goes into talking about health equities, talking about launching new products. It's a far-ranging conversation, uh, and it's one that I think you'll enjoy and learn a lot from. So uh, once again, this was from our stage of Device Talks Boston. This conversation uh, helped to open up day two of Device Talks Boston. So before we begin, a couple of things. Device Talks West is happening on October 18th and 19th. Boston Scientific will be there as well. We'll hear from uh, the Neuromodulation Group. So uh, if any folks from Boston Scientific would like to attend, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll uh, I'll help you make that happen. So please, again, reach out to Tom Salemi on LinkedIn. Before we begin this Great conversation. I want to bring in our sponsor, Clary. I've had the opportunity to speak with CEO Andy Byrne of Clary, and uh, we'll learn a little bit about Clary and how it works with medical devices. So we'll begin this interview with Andy Byrne, and then we'll get into the conversation that occurred at Device Talks in Boston. Andy, first off, tell us about Clary. Sure. Well, thank you, Tom, so much for having us on the show. Really appreciate it. Clary is a revenue platform that helps CEOs, CROs, and chief commercial officers answer the most important question in business. Will they meet, beat, or miss on revenue? Uh, We are being used by great companies in the healthcare life sciences space like Perkin Elmer, Henry Schein, lots of genomics companies, lots of robotics companies. And fundamentally what the revenue platform does, our solution from Clary, is it allows sales reps to close deals faster. It allows managers to drive more revenue. It allows execs to boost the predictability and accuracy of their forecasts. We are allowing companies to transform how they run revenue. And the value proposition is driving efficiency, driving more growth, driving more predictability across their entire end-to-end revenue process. All right, we'll hear more from Andy Byrne a little later in the podcast. If you need to find out more about Clary right now, go to clary.com. That's C-L-A-R-I.com. 
Now let's begin this conversation again, led by Megan Scanlon, president of urology that took place at Device Talks Boston. Tom, thank you. Uh, and it's always nice when you get invited back, right? It means you didn't blaze out uh, last year. So it's, it's great to be back at Device Talks uh, and really excited about having the opportunity um, to talk with you all today. And so today, uh, eventually, I think they might pull up a slide in the back, which will kind of give you the backgrounds of the individuals on this panel. Um, and we're actually going to use a case study. Right, so I have a picture of a device up here on the screen. Rest assured, I am not trying to sell it to you. We're trying to use it as a backdrop to understand and to have a real dialogue about how do you handle the pressure associated with being the first of something in the market. Now, that's meant to be a bit of a double entendre as well, because this device happens to do a really nice job of measuring pressure in the kidney. Um, But we'll get more into that. But I want to use this as a dialogue to talk about what it means to be first in a market and the opportunities, challenges, and excitements that come along with that. So I am joined today by three expert panelists who can talk with much more uh, credibility and excellence about key topics than I ever would be able to myself. And I'm going to let them introduce themselves ever so briefly. Go ahead, Jennifer. Hi, I'm Jen Saunders. I'm on the clinical affairs team at Boston. I've been here for 10 years and really focused on evidence generation and clinical strategy. Uh, Ben Catone, I was with Health Economics, now marketing. I've been with uh, Boston Scientific for uh, 16 years, uh, eight different roles. So I'm taking the company for everything it's got. (laughs) Hi, everybody. I'm Kristen LaRocca. Proud to say I've worked at Boston Scientific for almost 30 years now, and I am the Senior Vice President of Sales in the Urology Division at BSC. Great to be here. And I'm the baby at eight years. So, anyways. All right, so um, as, as I mentioned, uh, the picture we have up here is a device called LithoView Elite. Um, this is a flexible ureteroscope. What's a ureteroscope? A ureteroscope is a long, skinny camera that goes up your ureters into your kidneys so you can look around, see stones, bust up those stones, and suck them out. So you can avoid the very, very painful experience of passing a kidney stone. Has anyone ever passed a kidney stone in this room? Okay, I hear it's worse than natural childbirth. So, um, so we're going to talk about this. Now, Jennifer, this device measures pressure. Like, why do we care? Can you explain what intrarenal pressure is and why, why we think it matters? Absolutely. So, you know, in a very simplistic way, during a kidney stone surgery, there's a number of factors, uh, such as patient anatomy, irrigation, endoscopic tools. And those together can lead to both an unnatural and an unpredictable buildup of pressure within the kidney. And in this pressurized environment, we have bacteria, we have potentially infected urine, and at high enough pressures, that bacteria can actually pass back through the kidney and into the bloodstream. So following these surgeries, what we see is that patients have complications such as pain, fever, you know, fluid buildup around the kidney, as well as infection and even sepsis. And you know, to some degree, we know that intrarenal pressure is related to all of those complications. So having a product or having the ability to measure intrarenal pressure during these surgeries um, you know, can help the physicians to make informed decisions that are specific to the patients that they're operating on. So, Jennifer, I want to kind of continue with you a little bit. So we've done a lot of user needs and a lot of user research that really has informed why we jumped into solving an innovation like this. Um, But one of the 
complexities is when you're doing first-of-its-kind innovation, um, per there's not often the real-world clinical data set yet, and so you want to be able to bring the product to market with some data that helps to inform what we're trying to solve for and why it matters. And so as we think about how we tackle evidence before launching a device, how, how did you go about figuring out what we were going to do? Yeah, so, you know, this all started several years ago where there was even less evidence about what the implications of intrarenal pressure could be. So, you know, partnering with some of our more forward-thinking thought leaders enabled us to come up with the unanswered questions that we wanted to focus on. So, one of them, um, you know, using our preclinical models as a surrogate until the device or until pressure monitoring in people were, was available allowed us to focus on some of the questions. And one of them that we wanted to study was how does elevated intrarenal pressure relate to post-operative complications such as infection and sepsis through that mechanism, a backflow through the kidney and into the bloodstream. So, uh, you know, we worked um, with our thought partners, our thought leaders, and we developed a preclinical model that simulated the clinical scenario of uh, elevated pressures with infection. And in this model, we were able to directly correlate elevated intrarenal pressures to post-operative complications like sepsis. And, and I, I imagine, and we'll talk about it later, how that's starting to uh, inform, educate, and influence the urology community. But as we think about other sources of evidence, um, Ben, right, there's, there's lots of real-world evidence out there. Um, and do physicians really think and know we've got a sepsis problem? Or, you know, how do you, what, what was out there and what'd you do? Yeah, so uh, at the time I was running a real world evidence team and uh, we had a, a few enlightened urologists saying, hey, I think pressure and sepsis might be related. Uh, but there was a lot of urologists that we were talking to who were like, I don't have a sepsis problem. Uh, so we did a lit review and we're like, listen, there is actually a little bit of evidence out there. We were able to put it together into a meta-analysis and we found a signal. Right, but we're like, this is controversial. We need to replicate this using different methodology. Uh, so we actually, at the time, we still do, we had access to the IBM Watson Health uh, market data set. And we conducted a study there, and we found the signal again. Uh, and we started to quantify it. And we started going back to those same urologists who said I didn't have a sepsis problem and showing them our data. And they started telling us about their sepsis problem. Um, and in fact, actually, I remember uh, we were talking about this this morning. We were at headquarters in we had uh, a very respected urologist up there, but a naysayer in regards to sepsis. Um, and we were showing him the data, right? We were kind of, it was three slides. We're like, here's our meta-analysis. And he's like, yeah, but meta-analysis have inherent flaws of how the data is reported. We're like, great, here's our IBM study. Um, and he said, yeah, but that's claims data, and claims data has inherent flaws. And we're like, yeah, but when we dive deeper, uh, these patients were admitted 90% of the the time, 65% went to the ICU. Uh, the average episode of care was $50,000, and, and I'll never forget it. He said, uh, holy expletive, uh, Megan said I couldn't swear until Not we got back to the office, uh, holy, holy expletive, it's real. Right, and I think for us, all of us sitting in the room, uh, me in particular, you know, kind of the clouds parted and the sun came out and we're like, we have a real signal here. So. To us, right, when you're, when you're bringing out a technology or a solution that never exists before, the creativity and the just brilliant humans I get the opportunity to work with and serve, 
it's just, it is incredible the kind of data sources you can produce and create. But there are now different challenges, and I'm going to direct this one to Kristen, right? Because launching the first of its, creating a new category um, commercially, how do you get customers, the market, and our commercial organization ready to set this up for success? Thanks, Megan. Uh, to, to the commentary that Ben and just, no swearing. Um, no, no swearing. <laughs> I'm clear. Um, to the comments that Ben just made, monitoring interrenal pressure wasn't something that the, any of the doctors that we worked with, any of the customers, nurses, doctors, nobody was talking about it. So one of the things that we knew coming into this is that we were going to have to do a lot of education. And Education, yes, on the value of monitoring interrenal pressure, but also education on just utilization of the single-use uh, ureteroscopes, which is also uh, a, a newer category. So in our era with COVID, uh, one of the silver linings of the COVID era is it forced us to really get good at digital and really build our capabilities out. Um, and I'm not talking about just Zoom. And yes, we were able to avoid putting people on planes to get this education uh, to really start to develop this market. But we were able, over the course of time in preparing for this market launch, to get really immersive. Um, so our, our customers and our commercial organization, when they start to learn about this and be educated, uh, they get energized and they, they become really uh, immersed in in, in uh, the experience. So uh, digital has been really key to our success here in getting, uh, in getting our organization and our customers ready for this market launch. Yeah, I've been crazy excited about <clears throat> the digital immersive capabilities that have been built. We, we didn't want to like share all the secret sauce, but I can say, I mean, the power of being able to reach hundreds of physicians, not having them to get on planes, not having to participate in a super jet lagged way, um, just Awesome. Uh, it's incredible. It's, it's super cool. Maybe that's a topic for another and time. And back to the expletive, I'm not allowed to swear, but um, yeah. it has created the wow experience as well. And just uh, opening the eyes to yeah. something that um, they didn't necessarily recognize was a, was a problem before the experience. So, okay, Chris, I'm going I'm to stick with you. So we're well underway now into our early real life human experience with this device. Uh, what are we learning, seeing? How's it going? Yeah, so we, we, we've done over 100 cases now with the, the LithoView Elite, um, and we've done the cases in several markets uh, around the world. Lots of positive feedback. We've, we've, we've learned a lot through these um, first cases, uh, and we've got a lot more to learn. Uh, one of the things that that highlights uh, this fact is we had the AUA um, about a week and a half ago. So the AUA is the American Urologic Association meeting. It was in Chicago this year. About 6,500 urologists were there. And when you walked into our booth at the AUA, we had this 40-foot LED screen, and uh, we, we played a game. It was called Guess the Pressure, and it was right on the corner of our booth. So it was a huge area where people convened, and they played. And in addition to fun, the thing that people took away from it was measuring pressure is like wildly unpredictable, right? What, what they thought the answer was going to be was not what the answer was going to be at all. And so in addition to the fun, the takeaway was, geez, it's unpredictable. And uh, monitoring pressure is something uh, that 
is going to be really important in my in my clinical practice moving forward. So, I think uh, we're we're off to a great start, a, a long a long journey ahead. But people are starting to talk about. Uh, interrenal pressure and the need to monitor it. I, I love, and I love the approach. Actually, when I first walked into the booth, um, I, I wasn't quite sure. I was worried it was going to be a little kitschy. I mean, because we're talking, this was a 40 foot LED screen, and, and we actually, there was like a kind of like a game show host there to pull people <laughs> in. At Sajak, yes. But, but, but it made it fun. And, and, and I'll tell you, even having participated in a slightly more serious forum at the urology, the European Urology Association meeting, um, where we had a much more intimate conversation with one of the first physicians who's used this device, I loved it because he would show, he would give the, um, the clinical presentation of the patient, the history, he'd show the videos, and, he, and, you know, and it was like A, B, C, D, or E, what's the pressure? And this one person raised their hand and says, I think it's 60 to, 60 to 100, and he's like, that is a great guess. And you could not be more wrong. And the room, it just, it, it, it erupts in laughter. And so there, it's, it's these humbling moments. And, and I wonder, now Jennifer, right, so you've done all sorts of brilliant work preclinically that's been published and presented from the podiums, but now it's on the market. So what do we do next and what's our responsibility through your eyes? Yeah, so, um, you know, absolutely pre-market, we focused all of our efforts on understanding intrarenal pressure through our, our, our preclinical models, essentially, and focused on generating those data sets. But now with commercialization, you know, we do have an obligation to continue to generate that data set. And this time, now focused on the clinical data and the implications that intrarenal pressure may have on the patient outcomes. So, you know, we're working very closely with our key opinion leaders, with our thought leaders. You know, at the same AUA meeting, I had the opportunity opportunity to speak with many of our first-time LithiView Elite users, and, you know, their excitement was definitely there, but one of the things that many of them shared with me was how they actually modified their procedure during the surgery to maintain lower pressures, and that was something that they had never done before, and it was something that they didn't have the tool to do before, so it was really powerful to hear that, and, you know, from my perspective, we continually engage with these thought leaders, with these practitioners, um, and from a high level, you know, speaking of the economic data that we have as well, Boston Scientific is committed to driving that research forward. Um, you know, we're, we're, this is novel feature, and we want to help support the clinical efforts that will define, ultimately, what pressures are safe within the kidney. So, I mean, so, Ben, how, do you, how does the team think about it from like an economic evidence perspective and what else is available to us now yeah. that we're well, on the market? I, th I think what was interesting f for us is our real world research was product agnostic, right? And um, and we got uh, we got a lot of kudos for that, but we also got a lot of questions. Uh, and on one side, uh, the physicians that we were collaborating with on the research would, uh, would say, listen, I come from the biggest, most prestigious institution in the US and we don't have the resources to do this research, right? So, but on the other side, there was a lot of people asking questions. Uh, why is a medical device company doing research that is product agnostic? Uh, and the answer is really twofold. As a market leader, uh, we really believe we have a responsibility to add to and contribute to the you know, the urology field uh, and the scientific uh, curriculum that's out there. Um, on the 
on the other side, right, as a market leader from a business perspective, uh, taking a point of share from a competitor is not really meaningful to us. What's meaningful to us is disrupting, evolving, um, and driving that market forward, right? And when we start answering uh, questions or solving problems that are unsolved and increasing access to safety, more safe and efficacious procedures, um, that's when we really start to grow as an organization. Yeah, you know, I, um, I like that. And it, it is really neat when, when customers ask you, well, why would you have spent so much time and money to do that research? It doesn't include any of your products. Um, and that's, that's when you kind of know you're starting to do the right things for the right reasons. Um, okay. So I love the phrase, and I fervently believe this, that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Um, and we know that competition uh, is here and is coming. Um, and I'm curious, Kristen, from a commercial perspective, is competition a good thing? Does it keep you up at night? So both. Uh, competition's <laughs> a great thing, and it keeps me up at night. I think uh, competition helps us to raise our game, but it also just helps the industry in general and advancing science for our customers and their patients. So it's a really good thing. However, uh, we like to win. We, we have a c category leading position that we've worked really hard to attain, um, but we aren't resting on our laurels. Uh, our commitment to continuing to earn that quick category leading position is very ever present and something that we're focused on. Now, our division, uh, urology division at Boston Scientific, we have a lot of depth and breadth. Uh, so we have a, a huge portfolio of single-use devices as well as a lot of capital equipment now across multiple subspecialties within urology. And back to what uh, Ben and Jen were talking about, we constantly are doing the work to understand the needs of the customer, the unmet needs of the customer to figure out how our depth and breadth uh, can work with that customer to create value for that customer and make our partnerships stronger and also make our partnerships unique in a way that, uh, that our competitors can't, can't partner with customers. So um, competition is good, uh, but we are uh, extremely committed to that category leadership and leveraging the tools that we have to, uh, to, to do the best thing for patients and be the best partner to our customers. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because also with category leadership, uh, why this case study was sort of interesting for us to come have this dialogue with you today is across these urology subspecialties, we have equally bold first of their kind innovations that we're working on. And so the investments that are needed, if, if that's gonna be your business strategy to kind of like lead and shape the market, the investments that are needed in companies taking that stance are well beyond just a great sales force, well beyond just a great marketing team, and well beyond just really smart engineers. And I'm very lucky to be able to work with all three of those, but it is also the reason why we wanted to lean in so heavily on clinical, preclinical, and health economics is innovation is no longer just do you have smart engineers who can come up with whiz-bang gadgets. Um, that's definitely an important part of the ecosystem, but you have to create the evidence, the awareness, the buzz over time and try to do it in a really um, authentic way. Um, because I think if you go slow to go fast, that's where your most durable growth 
and market share gains and market share protection I believe comes from. So if we've accomplished nothing today, I hope that I have uh, been able to convince you that I work with some of the smartest uh, and most amazing leaders uh, in the world. Um, and with that, I want to thank, thank you all for joining me in this conversation today. And now we can sort of pivot to the burning questions. We'll take a quick break from this conversation to bring back our sponsor, Clary. Once again, I'm here speaking with Andy Byrne, CEO of Clary. Andy, tell me, how does Clary work with medical device companies? Yeah, let, let's talk about some specific people that are in the sales process in medical device companies, and let's talk about the value that we deliver. So first, let's take a look at a sales rep. They have so much manual data entry that they need to do. They don't like to do that. They have so many people to be running around to hospital, to clinicians, to doctors. And what that is a such a painful process. We help them by doing two things. One, automating all of their manual data entry, simplifying their life. And then two, helping them with a new experience that they've never had before that allows them to easily deduce where should they spend their time? Where do they have risk? Where do they have upside? We predict what deals will close as a win, what deals will not and maybe slip, what deals they'll lose. So it allows them to use these predictions, artificial intelligence to automate their manual tasks, give them time back to sell, and as well as drive more deals and close more revenue. Now on the manager side, the managers have all kinds of blind spots and we eliminate those blind spots. What do I mean by that? They don't know who are the reps meeting with? What doctors, what use cases are they talking about, whether it's on the capital side or the clinical side? So the managers have a new level of visibility that they've never had that allows them to understand where they should coach, where they should spend time, that allows them to drive more revenue. And then finally, on the exec side, we get them out of Excel hell. We give them a new interface that allows them to accurately predict, will they meet, beat, or miss on revenue using machine learning, that's analyzing all of their historical conversion rates, looking at all the activities that are happening across all of their deals, whether it's a capital sales motion or a clinical, more transaction oriented, and that allows them to be more predictable, more effective and drive higher shareholder value. All right, we'll go back to our conversation from Device Talks Boston. We'll hear a little more. One last message from Clary, our sponsor, a little later in the podcast. Again, if you want to find out more about Clary, go to Clary, C-L-A-R-I.com. Okay, now is the point where, again, we took questions from the audience. We didn't have a microphone available for the questioners. So I'm just going to sort of paraphrase what was asked, and we'll play uh, the panel's responses. So the first question centered around when Boston Scientific is coming out with new technology that's never been seen before or is better than whatever's out there. How much does the company, how much effort does the company put forth toward patient awareness to get patients on board to drive demand for the new product? So what does patient engagement look like for Boston Scientific? Let's listen. Yeah. And so, so in markets that are more elective, where the patient gets a diagnosis, they have to sort of sit with that diagnosis and explore their options. We find that patient awareness campaigns can be incredibly effective. So, for instance, um, in our portfolio, we have some wonderful innovations that for BPH, right, benign prosthetic hyperplasia, for prostate cancer, for erectile dysfunction, for incontinence. Those categories where um, patients spend some time and can kind of like choose their adventure, 
With kidney stones, sometimes it's a little bit more acute and urgent, right? So oftentimes, it's, that's, that kind of patient awareness, you have to drive the awareness at the time they know they have it. And, and oftentimes, it's a more urgent situation where they're kind of going into the hospital. And it's not a long-standing relationship that they have with their urologist who diagnosed them, right? So there might be an avenue there, but it's much more, I think, effective and exciting for some of the more elective or, or longer term to treatment procedures, whereas kidney stones, when you need it, you, you kind of need it. it. I don't know if you'd add anything to, to that, to my thoughts there, if you agree or disagree, have at it. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, yeah I, just, I would just also say, like, I think that's a bit more common when you're going to get a device that you're going to live with the rest of your life, where this scope's going to be up for maybe 45 minutes, and the patient's actually probably never going to see the scope. They're going to be under, under anesthesia the entire time. Now, what, what, what I, I do think is, as we continue to innovate in this kidney stone treatment category and sort of bring out a more interconnected... In, Wow, that sounded very Bostonian. Interconnected, uh, intelligent ecosystem. I think there is an opportunity to sort of partner to strengthen those sort of kidney stone centers of excellence that are leaning into some of the best technology as a whole that might pull locally, but part of it is also we're going to pilot and try along the way as the ecosystem builds out. There's some really cool, um, like, hospital and physician-led stuff that are, that's being piloted in certain areas in kidney stone treatment. Um, and so we'll also, also learn a lot from our customers on this. Right, the second question was a little off topic. It really centered around, it was a good question though. What's Boston Scientific's approach to recruiting sales talent uh, post-COVID? What kind of difficulties are having? What kind of solutions are they implementing? Let's listen. That's a great question. There are, uh, so there's a few things. I think uh, what, I, what I would put at the top, and it's changing, finding right now it's changing a little bit, um, but we have a lot of people who are jumping to the next opportunity. There's been a lot of, um, a lot of new companies, new uh, companies that are startups, small portfolio, offering great compensation packages, some great technology out there, and... Um, we do, have, uh, we do have a number of early career individuals in our selling organization in some of the roles, and those are the ones probably that are the most prone to making the jump to uh, the, shiny, the shiny new toy. So we, um, we, we ha have a lot of efforts going around um, building our culture and uh, highlighting that uh, we work in a really inclusive place. There's a lot of benefit uh, to working at Boston Scientific, not just uh, the products that we sell and what we represent, but also going to work with a, a group of high-quality humans and building your career, the, oppor the opportunities. But I would say getting in those millennials' minds, that's typically the... Uh, the, the age range uh, who, who like to jump and getting them to stick with us and build their careers and stay uh, has been an ongoing focus and I think it's been acute post-pandemic for us. You know, if I can layer on what's also been really interesting, right? Many companies experience the sort of great resignation, right? And, um, but what's also been really incredible is how many boomerangs yeah. have come back after that. And, and, and particularly for the younger generation that maybe hasn't worked in multiple companies, you sort of don't know what you've got till it's gone. Um, and there's power in that. There's power in the many, many, many 
employees who have come back or are actively trying to come back. Um, because you know you chase the title and you chase a large at plan comp number and then realize that plan was maybe not entirely achievable from a selling perspective. So um, part of it is also just stay the course. If you keep doing the right things, I think it pays off with your employee base and the business long term. Yeah, and, and Megan, it's a great point. That's actually, we do have a number of boomerangs now who tell their story about they didn't know how great they had it. And yeah. we've used that to our advantage as well to, um, you know, to keep people's uh, hearts, hearts and minds with us, yeah. for sure. A third question from the audience centered around how Boston Scientific is incorporating uh, new technologies like IoT, the Internet of Things, or uh, augmented reality into devices like Lithview. So basically, the questioner asked if they could just speak to how they're looking at those other technologies. Sure. So I can I, I will talk to it generically without sharing any um, unnecessary secrets. Mm-hmm. Uh, as it relates to how we're looking at the ecosystem that enables efficient, safer, less cognitive load in, in terms of how to treat kidney stones, a huge investment and advancement into the interconnectedness of the internet of things, the interconnectedness of things, and AI to sort of help inform um, decision-making and adaption, adaptation. Uh, What's really interesting is so kidney stone procedures, and go Google kidney stones, right? I mean, some of them are monstrous, um, and some of them are spiky, and some of them are smooth, and, and kidney stones are made up of, have different composition. And the most, the longest part of any kidney stone procedure and the most variable part of any kidney stone procedure, which then leads to the most frustrating part of any kidney stone procedure, is the lithotripsy step. Lithotripsy is the energy or the devices you bring to bear to break up the stone. You can have lasers, you can have baskets, like mechanical baskets. Um, That's where the most variability and sometimes the most cognitive load comes into play. Um, And so there's a lot of work that we're doing to lean into that and to really connect things in a way that solves unmet needs and makes this a more predictable procedure. The next question was pretty straightforward. They were just asking, Can the panel elaborate on cognitive load? It was brought up earlier in the conversation. Let's listen. Mm. Oh, cognitive load. Oh, sure. That is, but yeah. is it related to this? Yeah, so cognitive load. Um, at any given time, you know, a physician is trying to figure out, um, you know, what do they want their settings to be? Um, is my, now, is, am I more, you know, is, is the pressure too high? Is the temperature too high? Um, how long is this taking? Is, can, I, can I suck all of this debris out or do I need to keep going, right? You use lasers to kind of create, to break up the stone. You create like dust that can then be sucked out. So they're constantly having to think through a lot of these parameters. And we think that our, our, the ecosystem we're working on is going to allow you to do a lot of that. Now, not force you. Like if you don't want the machine to sort of optimize some of these things for you, I think that's also important because particularly in this procedure, physicians still really want control. Um, but we can allow them to pick the dimensions against which we can, you know, just go on autopilot. Thank you. Yep, absolutely. All right, the next few questions centered around health equity, which of course is a big issue for medical device companies. Boston Scientific, no exception, has been one of the leaders in the space with uh, many programs, including Close the Gap. So the questioner asked, how does a single-use device like Lithview, how does it fit into the, the picture, into the solution 
of improving health equity. Yeah, so I'm actually, so from in terms of patient accessibility, and, and I don't know if you were going here, so let me just, yeah. there's also a lot about underserved patient populations. Um, and, and Ben, I, can you talk a little bit about how we, how we look at that? So some is in the development cycle, but also a lot of it is just procedures that are done today with patients that are not getting the care that they need and deserve. Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple of components. I mean, the first is the cognitive load in trying to lower that. And our solutions are not just focused on the patient, they're focused on the provider. And the reason that's really important in urology is because there's a shortage of urologists in the United States. And it gets smaller and smaller every year. And we actually find that in a lot of our global markets. So when we bring a single-use device to market, uh, that allows you to take that device almost anywhere and, and, and do those procedures. Another part of what we do is we have a policy group, a health policy group, that meets with not only like the societies, but also also the payers uh, to like, you know, why patients should have access to care in these care deserts uh, that we call them. And then another component that we try to do, which is, you know, why we believe we're, we don't believe we know we're a market leader in this space. We actually have a field health economics team that goes out and meets with hospitals. Because believe it or not, there's a lot of hospitals out there that don't have a urologist. Uh, they don't have the right tools there. They're not willing to invest in them. They're not thinking correctly in our minds about their business on how they're putting those finite resources. So that's kind of a third component that we actually go out and meet with that hospital leadership and say, hey, this is the epidemiology of stone disease, right? Here, uh, here's our technology, and this is why we think you should invest in it and why it's a good decision for your, your patients uh, and for your institution. So it's not, it's not just one component, it's pulling together multiple components to tell that story to increase access to care. And then there's a quick follow-up about whether there was a difference between providing Lithview in remote areas or big cities. No, I mean, uh, there's no shortage of urologists on Longwood Avenue, right? Uh, but if, you, uh, if you're in South Dakota, that's a different, a, a different story. Um, and, it, and, you know, when we come to a Boston or a Chicago or a Nashville, it's more about competition and who can have the newest, best technology first. Right. When we go to a lot of our other markets, though, it's about how do we get any technology into your institution so that you can care for those patients who are showing up with an acute kidney stone and not putting them in an ambulance for 90 minutes. All right, we'll take a break from this conversation to hear our final message from our sponsor, Clary. Andy Byrne, this is uh, my favorite my favorite question to ask folks. How do you see the industry changing in the future? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, Tom. Generative AI is the future. You're hearing about it everywhere. We're already deploying it across these different revenue moments that I mentioned, and we're working with large language models. You know, we've been delivering artificial intelligence now for 10 years, and we've been working with these large language models and generative AI to be able to shrink the time to revenue, the time it takes a company to get results from their revenue process. How long does it take a rep to update their deal and showcase where that deal is going to land? How long does it take a manager to look across 10 reps that each have 10 deals? That's 100 deals where to figure out where they have risk, where they have opportunity. How long does it take to roll up a forecast? All of these different human-oriented moments are now leveraging generative AI and large language models to shift what would take an hour comes down to literally a second. What would take a week 
comes down to 30 minutes. What would take a month comes down to literally less than an hour. These are moments where we're going to see productivity and efficiency in a way that we've never been able to quantify before that imagine driving that across all sales reps, all managers, all execs across a 13 week cadence. And if we can shrink the amount of time it takes to drive results, we call that time to revenue using generative AI, these companies are going to see so much incredible top line performance at lower costs that will drive higher shareholder value. So the big thing that's coming like a freight train is generative AI and changing the entire revenue process end to end. All right. Fantastic. Andy Byrne, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Thanks to Clary for sponsoring this episode of Boston Scientific Talks. Once again, if you'd like to find out more information about Clary, go to clari.com. And another follow-up to this thread asked whether what, what Boston Scientific was doing when it comes to educating patients and doctors. It's something that had been brought up before, but uh, they were able to expand on that point a little bit more. Yeah, but we try to do it. We we try to do it with data, right? We don't want to come in. Our health, our field health economics team gets a salary. That's it, right? Like I, I used to be on that team. I came up through the ranks, and I used to joke like he still I, he still does get a salary. We yeah, yeah. Stop paying him, just to be clear. A per diem. But I, I used to joke when I would go and give this presentation at a dinner. I'd say I don't care if you buy something or not. When I leave here, I'm going to get paid the same. But let me show you a little bit of data and why we think some of this will help you making better decisions about your institution. Then the other thing I'd like to layer on, and admittedly we're, we're, I'd say, maybe in like, in urology, in like third or fourth grade in our kind of, you know, educational journey, is we're starting to do a lot of research on rates of care disparity in um, underrepresented communities. And, and starting to publish that and bring that to employers, bring that to healthcare systems, and Boston Scientific uh, really pioneered in our cardiology business has, has been operating a program called Close the Gap. And it really is intended to close the healthcare disparity gap in targeted communities, particularly like if you look at the rates of diagnosis and the kinds of care um, that Africa, the African-American community gets for cardiovascular disease, there's some pretty significant disparities there. We believe those disparities also exist in prostate cancer, for instance, oh. which, is a, which is a category that we care a lot about. Um, so there's, I think there's additional opportunities to really advance accessibility, like that lens. It's, there's so many potential chapters in that accessibility story. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I guess to add on to the add-on, um, the, the other area of focus for us is knowing that urologists, um, there's not a lot of women who are urologists. Yeah. There's not a lot of uh, minorities who are urologists. It's, it's about 10% that are represented by, uh, by minorities in urology. And uh, we know, based on the, the work that we've done, that... Uh, uh, women and minorities can really uh, relate to and draw in and provide care for uh, these patients in a way uh, that's that's different and very uh, uh, just in, in, in incredibly um, sound. And uh, so, the focus on you know uh, 
women and, and engaging women in uh, the field of urology and um, black urologists doing it at the, the medical school level, the residency level, um, is also a way to, yeah. uh, to, to transform. Uh, to that's, a, that's, a, that's a really good ad. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, the field of medicine in general, but urologists, there's a lot of opportunity to have patients be able to go see a physician that looks and feels familiar to them. We know yeah. they, they trust the care pathways better when that's the case. All right, and this is the final question from the audience. It really centered upon the whole theme of the conversation, uh, which was what were the sales and marketing strategies that Boston Scientific employed bringing innovative devices like Lithview to market? So let's listen. Yeah, so actually, let me start first with it's less in the early days about the sizzle, right? I think sometimes when you try to come out hot with sizzle and taglines, like people who are listening to it feel like they need to take a shower, right? <laughs> I, I think if, if, if we've conveyed anything, it's like start with the data, yeah. right? Start with the data. It is really through a clinical lens of evidence, of education, of also immersing. What I've loved about the way our engineers, even our sales teams and our health economics and clinical teams is as you're having conversations with clinicians, it's not about pushing what you believe. It's about laying out a data set and asking for reactions. Hey, poke holes in this. What do you agree with? What do you not agree with? That's why I love Ben's sort of multi-tiered conversation. Like, here's our meta-analysis. Well, here's why I think meta-analyses are flawed. Okay, here's our IBM. Well, here's why. And then in being open to that push. Back. I made the mistake early in my career, right? It's like I've spent all this time preparing this and I'm now going to sell it to you. And the second you ask me a question that isn't like fervently in love with everything I've just told you, I crumble, right? And it's just taking that more open, humble dialogue, I think, is the most critical approach to commercial success. Then as it builds buzz and you know now physicians are excited and people are tweeting their first case with the view elite and talking about what they saw, then it starts to kind of grow a little bit more organically. I also think that um, the, the tools we provide people online as they hear about it to kind of get educated about these, these devices and see certain case studies, taking that clinical lens, taking a data lens is always going to be more successful long term than vigorous jazz hands. I was just going to add to Megan's point that like in the early days, it's a delicate dance of creating evidence, generating evidence, and then creating challenger messages, right? Like you have to really be delicate there. And actually some of the feedback that we got during that process is we were probably being too conservative on the way we were generating evidence and delivering that message. But the other thing that was super rewarding, right? Because when you're disrupting a market, there's a lot of bad days, right? Uh, There's a lot of days, the things that you believe in, you're not sure if they're actually really out there. Um, And last year at the American Urological Association meeting, the 2021 meeting, nobody was talking about pressure, sepsis, nothing like that, right? In 2022, it was the buzzword, right? Everyone wanted to talk about it. In fact, I've kind of changed my focus a little bit at Boston Scientific, and I had all of these physician meetings, and I wanted to talk about something different, and they didn't want to talk about something different. They wanted to talk about intrarenal pressure uh, and sepsis. And, and I, I love that ad, Ben, because right, one of the things I, I love and appreciate about startup companies is there is this just fervent belief in the value proposition, right? Like, it's like so much so that sometimes you're like, wow, they're a little crazy, 
right? But, but it's that belief, <laughs> that belief, even when everybody's telling you you're likely wrong or all the naysayers are sort of pushing against. And thank goodness that innovation ecosystem is out there because a, a wonderful part of our portfolio has come from those brilliant startup companies and those brilliant innovators. When you're in the, the larger company, right, you have those moments of panic of like, oh my God, is nobody gonna come to my birthday party, <laughs> right? And, and, and so there's an element of like, you gotta stick to it. And you gotta be willing a lot of times, like particularly when you're trying to bring an innovation that has to, how do I wanna phrase this? In order for this to be successful, physicians have to realize they have a problem. Yeah. yeah. And it can be really hard for physicians to realize they have a problem, especially when part of the reason they don't think they have the problem is the problem's not coming back to them, it's going to the ER, right? Or the problem's not going back to them, like for instance, like in prostate cancer, you know, the complications after um, a radical radical prostatectomy or radiation therapy, those problems might materialize five years down the road. So the patient's coming somewhere else. So when they don't have those real-time feedback loops, the data sets, but also the way you approach it, because if you're coming hot, be like, you have a problem you're not aware of, right? You're gonna get a big, a big pushback. So it's that there's empathy, there's self-awareness, there's, you know, there's modifying your approach, there's trying a bunch of things out. And if 12 out of 15 people have given you the Heisman and shut the door, <laughs> you might wanna alter your approach and strategy. So there is a degree of courage and humility that is required when you're trying to do something new. And I, we see it in spades with, our, with the startup ecosystems, which I admire and love. Yes. Whoops, actually there was one more question, but I'll let uh, Megan Scanlon share it with you. Let's listen. Oh, okay, so the, the question was, and because I just want to make sure, because I, I can't hear anything out of this ear, and so I'm like, <laughs> perfectly. Um, it's, as you're, as you're looking at the evidence and you're realizing the economic value you're creating, um, how does that sort of maybe change your economic model or your commercial model? Mm-hmm. Um, so let me, let me first, like from an economic perspective, let me ask Ben and then Kristen, I'd be curious yep. for your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, ever so quickly, you know, we probably, I don't know, maybe five years ago formed this field health economics team. Quite honestly, it was like me being an analyst wanting to get out of the office and see a few people. And we started talking about it and it started really resonating. Uh, So we built a team around it, uh, but it became so powerful. uh, We had to start training the sales team on it, right? And, you know, I I would argue uh, our sales teams in urology are some of, like, the strongest health economists you're ever going to (laughs) meet. Well, uh, I I always say the health economics team, they're our secret weapon. Great, great, great partnership to provide a lot of value for the customers. So I'm going to answer the question. I do want to say one thing, too. I've been in urology a long time. One thing that I absolutely love about urology is the urologists are innovators. So a lot of times the yeah. ideas uh, come from the urologists, you know, in, in, in them peeking around corners and thinking about opportunities and un- unmet needs. And I, uh, I love that about the community because that's gotten us started on a lot of things that have been incredibly meaningful along the way too. So the urology community is great. But commercial, just commercial modeling, um, that's that's an ongoing evaluation of the market landscape. You know that one of the exciting things about uh, medtech is that uh, the landscape is always changing, and you've got to be on your toes thinking about what's around the corner so you can continue to lead. But there's there's usually um, three things I would say that um, that that frame commercial model evolution uh, and the thinking about it. You know, sometimes it's new sites of care, right? So where where's where's the work getting done, and how do we how do we 
how do we best service in that site of care and provide value? And sometimes it's around, you know, franchises and specific work that's getting done um, uh, in that specific franchises. And that, and, and then that kind of leads to the third area where, where it's like, what's, what's really needed for that franchise? What kind of roles, what kind of support is needed for, for success? And it might not always be a sales role. It might be a health economics role. It might be some kind of a marketing role, a clinical role, a support role to um, support the customer in, in, in advancing uh, care for patients. So uh, lots of things to consider as you're thinking about uh, what your commercial model looks like and how best to serve. And, you know, one of the one of the probably most powerful and successful uh, organizations in Kristen's group is the, the group that goes out and works with, like, large IDNs and GPOs and mm-hmm. tells that economic story. Because, listen, you, you can't be the market-leading innovator and be the low-cost provider, right? Like, our, our objective is to provide the best, most comprehensive innovations that deliver the most value. And how you tell that story, so you get out of, like, this guide wire versus this basket versus this mm-hmm. BPH solution versus this, like, that requires a very senior experienced team who can talk to the economic buyer who who can have challenger conversations and know know when when to lean in or when to walk away sometimes right because part of it is really making sure that the value we're investing in we can best uh, communicate but also and it's honestly it's the reason why we've established such a category leading position particularly here in the United States is we have a team under Kristen's leadership that does a remarkable job telling that economic story Um, but the economic story is worth jack if you don't have a clinical selling organization that provides exceptional care Um, and and we're we're really quite fortunate to be able to have the benefit of both Um, and with that we have 11 seconds left. Um, and so let me just take these 11 seconds, now 10, now 9, to thank Tom um, and to thank you all for your active engagement and uh, listening to our little story and case study here. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. All right, well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Thanks, of course, to Clary for sponsoring this episode and for joining us on the podcast and to our great panelists for not only entertaining folks on the day of Device Talks Boston, but of course now through the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Once again, we're thrilled to have Boston Scientific as part of Device Talks West. If any Boston Scientific employees would like to register for the event, please reach out to me on LinkedIn and I'll uh, let you know how you can do that quite easily. So please, uh, if you would, share this podcast episode on your social media channels. And when you do, I would love it if you'd connect with me. My name is Tom Salemi. I am Editorial Director of Device Talks. It's Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. I would love to be part of your conversations. If you're not sharing it, but you still want to connect with me, that would be great. I'd like to hear what you're up to, what you are up to in the medical device industry. Please do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network to receive future episodes of the Boston Scientific Talks Podcast. You'll also get episodes of our other great podcasts, including Device Talks Weekly. And finally, again, Device Talks West is happening on October 18th and 19th in Santa Clara. Go to devicetalks.com to find out more information about the conference about our podcast and about our many, many other products and offerings. So thanks very much for joining us 
on this episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast. Please again, subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network so we can send the next episode of the Boston Scientific Talks podcast directly to you.